And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the cruise ship Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the very last podcast before our hi- hiatus, the Cruise Ship Podcast! And we're here at the end of 2016, which I think most of my friends agree is possibly the worst year, maybe ever. Um, maybe the worst year since the crucifixion, the sack of Rome, the burning of the Library of Alexandria, and um, fill in the blanks. But by and large... That's absurd. Um, no, no, I'm sorry. That's absurd, Gary. Yeah, I know it is. It absolutely is. It doesn't make any sense at all. You know, um, I mean, it's not been a great year. The, the American election is very worrisome, and the American political system is very concerning, and the British situation with Brexit is very concerning. But, you know... You can't compare it to the Second World War or anything, any one of a bunch of other things. So it ain't good. And, no, a, bu- and a bunch of pop stars uh, died, and that was very sad. But you know, respect of it, it all was things. a sad year. There were a lot of people. You, you, any year that you lose David Bowie and gain Donald Trump is a problem. Well, we had Donald Trump anyway. We just have to pay attention to him now. Well, we have to pay attention to him. That's true, I suppose. But nevertheless, how many podcasts are we in now? We must be approaching three hundred. This will be episode two hundred and ninety-four. Okay, so, uh, so that, that seems to mean something. But that the, the good news is that will not happen in 2016. So that's um, right. Uh, the, the, you know, but, if, if there's a 300th episode, it will be next year. Yes. And we need to, uh, at some point, look back over all these podcasts we've done and figure out which ones. And we could ask people to contribute ideas to this. Which ones are the most memorable memorable podcasts that we've made that that you recall that you're either appalled by or really proud of? Look, I'm not going to pretend that I remember every single episode the same way, but there's some that I felt went really well and were really interesting. I'll always look back very fondly on the episode where we talked to Ursula Le Guin. I thought that was very interesting. Um, I enjoyed your conversation with Samuel Delaney. Uh, I've greatly enjoyed our own conversations, but I can't say that any one of them stands out as particularly outstanding over that period of time. And, you know, they're probably individual ones. You know, I mean, I remember some terrific conversations with Kids Johnson, with Peter Straub, with all kinds of friends of the podcast. I think that uh, from my point of view, I could say the same thing. You and I have had so many individual conversations in which there were moments of brilliance that sometimes went on for 50, 60, 70 seconds at a time. Um, but there are also podcasts that were just enormous amounts of fun. I thought it was an enormous amount of fun to talk to Scott and Elizabeth. It was fun to talk to Gardner and, and Jack Dan uh, having a great time. It was um, and, and, and I think some of the podcasts that were not necessarily uh, focused on the guest. I mean, you mentioned uh, Ursula Le Guin, where we were talking mostly about Margaret Atwood. Uh, with Neil Gaiman, we were talking mostly about R.A. Lafferty. So I think it's always fascinating to me, not just on the podcast, but at conventions and elsewhere, to hear writers talk about other writers, um, and especially writers that may not um, get the kind of recognition that, that that they deserve. I just one of the books I just recently read was uh, Richard Lupoff's autobiography, um, which is partly an autobiography, partly a memoir, partly some essays uh, that he's written in other books over the years. And there was a long, loving piece about Avram Davidson, who was again a writer that 
Um, I don't know if anybody reads any, anymore. It's, it, it's, it's one of these things where people who knew Avram Davidson's work need to do something to keep him in print. There was a, a, an email I got today pointing out some small presses bringing back into print David R. Bunch stories. Terrific writer from the 60s who just seems to have disappeared entirely. And I think one of the functions of convention panels and podcasts and blogs and various kinds of online venues is to get the writers who have a great deal of respect and affection for for other writers who might not be as well remembered to to, to, to sort of encourage people to read them. And I, I think as a category, that's a kind of podcast and it's kind of panel discussions we've had uh, as well that I've, only, I've really enjoyed. I've greatly enjoyed those as well. I think the other thing that I've enjoyed is every now and again we get to talk to someone we, we, we don't know, we've heard very little of, they're new to the field, they're just mm-hmm. you know becoming better known. And it's not that we, we've played any part in making them better known, it's that we've had a chance to encounter their viewpoint. So when you talk to, well, in this last 12 months, Kaya Shante Wilson, Kelly Robson, um, uh-huh. people like that, um, I think that is always a great pleasure and a joy because you're always looking for not so much sort of casually and in a facile way what comes next, but you're just interested in where things are going and where we're going to be reading in the future. And, and, and plainly, that's changing. You know, we talk and talk and talk about various things. We talk and talk and talk about inclusion and openness and everything else. And to some small degree, that begins to fall into the podcast itself. You know, um, I, I, I mean, certainly if we could have, we would have had Su, you know, Susan Liu on the podcast this year, given that he actually made it to the States, but that was mm-hmm. unfortunately not possible for, for practical reasons. And I'd love to see us talk to more African science fiction writers, uh, more people around the world generally, just to broaden the scope. And, you know, if there's to be a future for the podcast in 2017, uh, I think it would be really, really a good thing to have have you know, more some fin- you know, talk to some Finnish writers, given that we're all going to go to Helsinki uh-huh. in uh, 2017. And just a quick quick side shout out to the people at the Helsinki airport for coming up with the best airport sign that I've seen all year long. Uh, which, oh, really? Yeah, they had That's a huge big sign outside the airport, and it said, you know. Nobody in their right mind comes to Helsinki in November. And then asterisk, except for you, <laughs> you badass, welcome. <laughs> and I just thought, great sign. Just a great sign. Great uh, sign and, and so I'm looking forward to Helsinki enormously. Um, mm-hmm. And also, and I, I guess... I generally, the, sorry, yeah? No, I was going to say, the, generally, I think your point about international science fiction or or fantasy or international... Fantastica is, uh, is is one of the things we probably could have done a better job with, I think, actually. Um, sure, yes. I mean, I think that the podcast came out of a particular discussion, and that discussion, which was really the one between you and I and Charles and what Locus was doing, had not fully broadened out at that point. You know, I think that um, Charles is very aware of it, and was always pushing for international coverage in Locus with varying degrees of success mm-hmm. he himself would admit, but always pushing for it um, and always actively, passionately interested in it. Um, and I think over time, that's you know, grow, you know become a thing for the podcast as well. That and you know, hopefully discussions of some books that maybe 
we wouldn't have paid attention to otherwise at some earlier time, or maybe people would be less aware of. And that's been very enjoyable. I greatly have enjoyed doing the roundtable episodes this year, where we've had a chat with James mm -hmm. and Ian. Um, though I'm aware that when you get James and Ian and yourself and myself together, it's sort of a middle-class white guy explosion, which is always a, a, a problem. It is a problem, and uh, but uh, that's, it's starting with you and you and I. We are kind of middle-class white guys, so there's not a lot to be done about that. But the, the 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 difference I was noticing between when Charles used to get reports and Locus used to have a regular, uh, not a regular, irregular columns: science fiction in Poland, science fiction in Romania, science fiction in Israel. And I used to read those, and I used to read them with some frustration because they were all books I couldn't get. They were mm. books that were not going to be translated. They were books that are not going to be published. Um, in a language I could understand, and that's changed since since uh, Charles began doing it. It hasn't changed as much as it should have. No, I don't think but, it has. Um, you know, 20 years ago, a, a, a column on Finnish science fiction would have been, it's kind of nice to know that they're doing that, but we're never going to see this stuff. Now we have a chance of seeing it. Now we can see Israeli science fiction and Finnish science fiction and Nigerian science fiction and uh, Malaysian science fiction and fantasy. So there's there's much more of a chance of the dialogue becoming international um, in a kind of um, two-way direction, by, by, by which I mean uh, from talking to people in, in France and Germany especially, but also some people in Israel and, and people I've talked to who've talked to people in, um, in Africa. Yeah. The dialogue has always been there. There's always been... Uh, a, a group of science fiction writers, and actually when Sujin Liu was in Chicago for the Nebula Awards and I was able to talk to him through Ken Liu, he made it very clear that yes, people all over the world are still responding to classic American science fiction. American science fiction has tended not to respond to people around the world simply because, for one thing, it hasn't been available. Now it's becoming available. Now you have people like um, Lobby Tidhar, for example, adding to the dialogue, people responding to what he's doing. You have, I think, a beginning of evidence of uh, Western writers responding to Chinese science fiction, not only through Su Xin Lu, but through some of the translations that uh, that Ken has done of short fiction. Very so much. So the, yeah. the idea that the rest of the world is beginning to influence Anglo-American science fiction is an interesting idea that is probably pretty underexplored so far. Well, I think it's hard to determine what the influence international science fiction has had on North American science fiction and fantasy yet. I think that'll take a few years. Yes. I think there's some actually really enormously valuable programs out there that are contributing to all of this. Certainly the work that's been done at Clark's World, the work that's been mm -hmm. done by Ken Liu, particularly to bring Chinese science fiction into uh, the environment we're in. And the fact that a Chinese science fiction novel could win the Hugo in the, within the last 18 months says a lot, I think, about mm -hmm. how things are changing. I would direct everybody to Jeff Ryman's African Fantasy Reading Group on Facebook. Um, mm -hmm. He was talking about, you know, just the other day, about the lack of awareness of major African science fiction fantasy novels, books like um, Azotus by Shadrach Chakoti, Azanian Bridges by Nick Wood, Rosewater by Tade Thompson, and the upcoming mm -hmm. Tati Went West by Nikhil Singh which uh, he's strongly recommended. 
So I would say go and look at that information. Publishers should look at that information. And I'm certainly endeavoring to try and keep it, you know, remain aware of it. And I have to say that I am always interested and surprised a little bit, which speaks more to my lack of connection than anything else, at the range of writers that Jeff and Ann Vandemer are always discovering out of, um, out of Europe. Uh, which, mm-hmm. I think is, which I think is enormously valuable and, I mean, has been valuable and will, I'm sure will continue to be. So, you know, th- th- there's a lot out there to engage with and that's been in the background of the podcast all whilst what we've been doing is changing, whilst Locus has been doing is changing, what American science fiction, how it's been changing. And, you know, the whole year-to-year pattern of it, which is what we're caught up in right now. I mean, we were saying last week when we recorded our year in review episode that we were caught up in doing... My, my best of the year. I've just finished the table of contents for it. Um, mm-hmm. and doing Locus's recommended reading. And that's part of that annual kind of process. And I think one of the challenges for us, not just to, uh, in terms of, in, in terms of what we read and we talk about, but the challenge isn't just to be open internationally, uh, to be open culturally across gender and all sorts of other bar- racial barriers and everything else, but actually to be uh, to be aware across age barrier as well, generational barriers, you know. I mean, I'm of a generation pr- almost earlier than yours, and there are, you know, sort of three science fiction, four science fiction generations after mine who are out there engaging Probably, with the world yeah. right now. And so there's that need to try to remain aware of those new writers and those new editors and those new publishers and what they're doing and what that's adding to the conversation and how, as we've said so often with the conversation atomizing over the years, what's happening in those small, small worlds and how they may or may not be coming back together. I mean, I don't know if I was talking about this last week, but, you know, in bringing the Locus Short Fiction recommended reading list close to its conclusion, we've got one more round of voting to go and Uh then we'll be done, I think. I, I'm, I'm struck by the sheer variety of places where, where things are being published, as I often am, and the number of people, you know, the number of writers yeah. who I've not previously heard of who are worthy of discussion and attention. You know, the Domin- Dominica Fetaplaces, uh, all kinds of other people, and the kind of people, we, you know, we, that we should be uh, involving in this dialogue, if it, you know. And you know, it's something we've tried to do. You know, it's, it's been an interesting 293 episodes. I guess my question is, when you talk about uh, discovering new writers you've never heard of, and that's always a thrill, um, you get a chance to do that more often than I do because you're reading more short fiction. But if I get a novel by somebody who I've not uh, seen before, if I get Sylvia Moreno Garcia's first novel, for example, it's, it's very exciting to discover that. But part of what I want to know also is... First of all, how many people are actually reading this? It's great to have things in translation. It's great to have the Vandermeers doing what they did with the big book of science fiction and deliberately internationalizing it and globalizing science fiction. And it's great, as you mentioned, to have Sujin Lu win a Hugo Award, um, which probably I would, without having any evidence at all, um, guess is probably the best-selling translated science fiction novel of the last 20 years or so. Yeah. and that's very encouraging, but the things that are uh, the unanswered questions are, who is reading this? How much are these people into the fold? That's one thing. How much are they you know, in the field? How much are they people who have been discovered by editors such as yourself? The second question is, 
what is their relationship to the field? What is what do they think they're entering when they enter science fiction? There was a time when if you were entering science fiction, if you were a new writer, you had three or four magazines, you knew that you were supposed to know Heinlein and probably Clark and probably Le Guin and probably a few other people. I don't think people come into the field with those assumptions anymore. I don't think they necessarily should come into the field with those assumptions. But, but I'm curious about what assumptions they do bring with them. I think we have to be very careful about our assumptions here uh, when we talk about the, what, what the backgrounds, the views, the uh, interaction with the history of the field that any individual writer has. Uh, I think it depends where they mm -hmm. come from. I think it depends what they're interested in. We were both, I think, really interested to talk to Scott Lynch and Elizabeth Baer and find out, and, and, and you know, yeah. find out, I guess, just how deeply engaged with the history of the field the pair of them are. And I think that's reflected yeah. in the kind of work they create. I think that there are a bunch of just as important and worthwhile writers out there with little or no engagement with the field. And I suppose it's just getting some awareness of when that happens so that you can get some kind of a feel for what they're doing because it, it's both of interest and important and unimportant, you know. Um, Certainly, a, you know, a work of science fiction or fantasy isn't a lesser work just because the writer is not aware of the field into which they're writing. Not at all. I mean, after all, but it, how else otherwise could you have started off in the history of the field you know, when there wasn't one to read? You know, how well read could a Lovecraft have been? You know? That's true. That uh, example, but but I, I think you have to make a distinction here because there is, uh, there is the point... Um, the, the Gwyn made in an essay, which I quoted either last week or the week before last, that you can't really write science fiction well if you've never read it at all, and you can't really write science fiction well if you've never read anything but science fiction. So there are the awkward moments of entering the field and, to some extent, reinventing the wheel. There's the, there's the occasional episode of a Philip Roth apparently being under the impression that he invented alternate history in the plot against America, which is a very powerful novel in many ways. I think you're absolutely right. The fact that a, a writer not familiar with the history of the field inadvertently uses a trope or advertently uses a trope um, is a completely legitimate tactic. And to some extent, I think writers like that have been unfairly maligned by people within the field because they're saying, we don't care how good this novel is, it's an old idea, and he or she thinks it's a new one. That's an unfair criticism. I think it is. On and the I, th other I hand, think it also misunderstands the mission that the writer may be on, and I think it's worth taking that into account. And it's, it, it's, it's worth allowing that it is just as legitimate to have no interest in engaging with the history of the field as to be fully engaged. They're just different things. Well, I think the, f the field is full of people who were... Uh, oddly engaged with the field, if if engaged with it at all. I mean, as far as we know from, from uh, the research that Alan Elms has done on his biography, Paul Leinbarger didn't know a lot about science fiction. Um, David Bunch, I just mentioned earlier, who's back in print now, apparently was a poet, didn't know a lot about science fiction. And simply not knowing what was allowed and what wasn't allowed in the genre en enabled them to create kind of radical uh, new forms of fiction within science fiction. Uh, I think that what was the advantage that they had was that they were published as science fiction. The only people who would publish what they were doing were science fiction publishers. Uh, so they were accepted in the field, whereas, let's say, a Margaret Atwood 
uh, or an Eden Lepucky or somebody who writes a, a, a mainstream dystopian may generate a certain amount of resentment because they're having way more success than a science fiction writer would have with the same material. Fair enough. I mean, I, I can see that. It may not be fair enough. I'm not sure it's fair enough. <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. That, that, uh, okay. that, that, that is a, ca a, a non-engaging comment on, on, on my behalf. I apologize. I guess, look, <laughs> um, I, 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 I suppose it's true. I guess the question is, though, it's like, is it, what is it fair to criticize writers for? And at the end of the day, what it's fair to criticize writers for, I guess, is what they put on the page. And all the rest of it is neither here nor there. And it, I mean, I don't think you can read Paul McCauley, right, without being aware that he's engaged with the field. I don't think you can read Elizabeth Bear without being aware that she's engaged with the history of the field. And I think that's the same right. of Elizabeth Hand and Kate Wilhelm and C.J. Cherry and Lois Bujold. Lois Bujold is vastly accessible and terrific, but she she lives in that her work lives in that the context of that field. Uh, I think if you but, go but out, but she's not. Yeah, mm -hmm. I was gonna say if you read well, like Ka Karen Tidback, she's not. You know, no, and and yet Karen Tidback comes out of a, a tradition of Swedish fantasy, which is mm. less familiar to most of us, and she's also very consciously rebelling against the tradition of. Um, of Swedish realism, which uh, is has been dominant in Sweden as it has been here. But I wanted to go back to something you said about Bujold being very accessible, <clears throat> because you're, I think you're right. Bujold's fiction lives in many ways in the center of science fiction. All of the materials she deals with is classical science fiction material. But she has an enormous following, uh, or at least a sizable following, of people who don't read much other science fiction other than Lois Bujold. And I think one of the reasons for that is that she has an unusual talent uh, to, in, in, in effect, educate the reader how to read science fiction as she's writing it. So she can satisfy the science fiction readers who are experienced with the tradition that she's working in, and she can also very cleverly insinuate the background necessary for readers who are not science fiction readers. Um, and and, and there, there are a limited number of writers who can do that. Another one actually is Orson Scott Card who's just very, very good at giving you a primer on how to read what he's writing while you're reading it. I think that's true, but I think there are two other things that are true for most of the great popular popularizers of science fiction and fantasy. And I'm thinking of, I mean, of mm -hmm. Bujold, of Card, certainly, and certainly of Neil Gaiman, uh, and certainly of, mm -hmm. I, I could name a couple more. John Scalzi would be another great example. Yes, they're great at yeah. giving you the context to read what they're doing. Yes, they're very good at sometimes engaging with very complex things in a very accessible, understandable kind of a way. Um, but what they also have is they all tend to have a very engaging voice. And they also mm -hmm. tend to be very good at staging their books, their stories in character-based terms. You know what I mean? The great strength of Bujold is her people. And the great strength of Neil Gaiman, the great strength of Scott Card, the great strength of most of these, of Soskalzi, are the, are the characters they create and how you engage with them. And that's what gives you the doorway to the rest of what's in their stories. I think that's absolutely true. And one of the things, I don't know if we, we may have done a podcast on characters in science fiction, but when you mentioned Bujold, and, and again, you talk to fanatical Bujold readers, they want the next Miles, they want the next Borkosigan. Uh, if, and if you talk to 
well, obviously the Scott Card readers had an endless appetite for Ender and Ender's brothers and Ender's shadow and Ender's friends and Ender's so forth and so on. And when you think of Neil Gaiman, you you know, if you think of um, the, um, the you, you think of Shadow in mm-hmm. um, you know American Gods. In other words, these are writers for whom, and I'm putting your point. Re, these are science fiction writers for whom most readers could name a character. Um, and it's very interesting when you go back and look at some of the classic uh, science fiction novels of an earlier era. Uh, how many people? This could be a test. This could be a test on a panel discussion. How many people recognize the name? I think it's Jan Rodericks. I may be misremembering, um, but I believe that was a central human character in Childhood's End. I don't, I don't remember, and but, yet, I, but you know, I do, but we we do remember the central characters from from June, from some of Heinlein's novels, and so on. You know, I mean, there there are characters there, right. even though science fiction is not renowned for producing great characters. But what I'm saying, what you were saying, at mm. least, or what you were implying about something like the Bourgeois novels, is that the character keeps you coming back to those novels. You know, Bourgeois writes Mild again in the same way that uh, that Sue Grafton writes mysteries. You have, you know basically uh, Kinsey Millhouse novel after novel after novel because you like the character. In other words, some science fiction writers have discovered the same secret of a loyal following that mystery writers have known forever. Um, and it's, it's, it's fascinating because you do think of heroic figures. You think of the mythic figures, the Paul Atreides, Muad'Dib. But who are the Miss Marples of science fiction? Who are the Hercule Poirot's of science fiction? I don't know. I'm not sure that I would ever have called Miles Verkosigan a Miss Marple of science fiction or Ender Wigan. Uh, no, I, in, in all fairness, you know. But you, you, you see, the point I'm making is that Miles is a complicated, interesting, uh, troubled, uh, disabled character. There's all kinds of complications in that character that makes him uh, an appealing character, volume after volume after volume. I guess my feeling is that. Science fiction has given us rel- relatively few characters of that sort. Um, and even, as I recall, the Dune novels, Paul Atreides was pretty much out of the picture by the third novel anyway, wasn't he? I believe so, yes. You know, I mean, there are back- other background characters, characters that continue. Yeah. And, and look, I, I think fantasy has, in some ways has been better at it than science fiction. I could probably go through fantasy and, has been better. and come up with, you know, a, a good range of of fantasy characters, and certainly, I mean, even, even again, Bujold, her fantasy is very good at it, you know, and is having success with her Penrick uh, stories at the moment, um, you know. So, and if, if you look at, say, the work of, say, Terry Pratchett, you know, that's what his brilliance is in his both his his prose and his ideas, but also very much in his, in his people and his characters, so yeah. Yeah, and the characters continue year after year, um, the people who are genuinely upset at, at, at Granny dying in the end was uh, it was like people watching. I, I, I don't want to make comparisons all the time with Agatha Christie, but people were very upset when Hercule Poirot killed, uh, and there was there was a similar situation I think um, to Granny Weatherwax is dying. So so there's a real emotional connection that I think fantasy writers have characteristically done a better job of than science fiction writers in creating those characters that a reader falls in love with. Well, that's true. I mean, when I look back over my reading year, um, I can't think of immediately a science fiction novel that produces a great character. I mean, one of my favorite novels of the past 
15 months is The Thing Itself by Adam Roberts. And for all of its many strengths, mm-hmm. I don't think of it as a great character novel. It's a great idea novel with some very, with some terrific writing in it, but not a great, you know, character novel. Uh, I guess Charlie Jane Andrews' book, All the Birds in the Sky, what, what, uh, beguiles me more, there are the characters. That's what, enge- where I engage with more than necessarily the ideas. And it's more of a fantasy novel. Um, yeah, it really. And so on. And, uh, I, but then you look at something like, say, Guy Kay's book, Children of Earth and Sky, which we all recommended the other, the other week. Uh, and it's a combination, you know, guy opens up his worlds through strong characters. The reason you tend not to think about it that way though, so much though, is because he tends not to build on those characters serially for across a bunch of novels. Right. And that, and so you have to re, uh, learn about them again, but, but even in a series of novels, if it's a character based series of novels, the first two volumes of, of, of Ken Liu's dandelion, uh, dynasty, are completely character-based. The second volume, which I'm just belatedly reading, uh, spends almost half of the first volume talking about the education of a very smart young woman from the provinces who wants to sit for... And and, and, and she gets trained uh, by an, a, a legendary advisor to the king and so forth. And she's an absolutely fascinating character. And, and, and there's a point at which in these character-based stories that, well, okay, we know we have to have dragons and we have to have airship battles and we have to have political machinations and we have to have lots of blood. But I think if, if, one of the signs of a character-based novel like that is that, no, I want to go back and find out more about the books this person is reading and, and, and what she's interested in because you've become engaged in the character. Now, that having said that, let me back off a, a little bit and say that likable, sympathetic characters are not a prerequisite for great science fiction or fantasy. No. It's very difficult to find a likable character anywhere in M. John Harrison's work. And his most memorable characters, by and large, are pretty awful. And I doubt Greg as, Egan as, would, as, would suggest that he'd written many great characters, though he's written some wonderful stories. He's written some wonderful stories. The characters are not central to them. There are uh, characters, the central character, and this is true of fantasy, the central character in uh, Stephen Donaldson's Chronicles of Thomas Covenant is, to my mind, a character that you can understand is damaged, but he's really not a nice person. <laughs> okay, I want to ask you an unfair question that's completely at right angles or irrelevant to this conversation. All right. And I have my own response, but I'm going to actually provide it after I've heard your answer to this question. What was your most disappointing book that you read in 2016? Um, well, I think you know what the answer to that is, actually. Um, but I'm really hesitant to say because it's it's successful. Okay, in terms of advancing the movement of science fiction, I don't think Connie Willis's novel did that. I think what it did was write an epic scale screwball comedy that is very satisfying to readers who like Connie Willis's sense of humor. Uh, as a major science fiction work, it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's not, it's not the work which is going to revive the discussion of telepathy as a science fiction device. Okay. I will provide two answers because I am a full service, uh, podcaster. Uh, I uh-huh. was, quite disappointed in Gentleman Joel and the Red Queen by Master Bujold. I know it's Uh widely loved by other people, and I respect their points of view. I know that 
it's been suggested to me that what I don't like about the book is that it's primarily a romance novel rather than a science fiction novel, but I, I actually reject that criticism. I feel that Bujold is a spectacularly entertaining and engaging writer and a wonderful creator of character. And I think that she's a very interesting science fiction writer. And in this particular book, she managed to create a book that was by her standards flat, I thought felt, and didn't have the spark uh-huh. that a lot of her other books have had, which was, I mean, in fairness, was not intended to be a, a, a genre pushing science fiction novel and isn't, but that's okay. Uh, and it's like a, a mildly interesting romance. I think it's, I think like, like it's an okay grace note in a, in a spectacular series. And so that disappointed me partly because I yeah. had very high expectations. And the other book that I would say was disappointing again. And I, I, I suppose I should try and emphasize as much as I can, because this will be taken, potentially taken away out into the world. When you talk about something being really disappointing at, at the, at the least it's because you had very high hopes for it being excellent and outstanding and wonderful. And I had very mm-hmm. high hopes for Crosstalk by Connie Willis. I have loved a lot of her short fiction. I have loved some of her novels and always been engaged by her work. I felt that Crosstalk was definitely not one of her better or more interesting books. I felt the idea didn't particularly develop very well. I felt that it didn't have the kind of spark in life that I would expect for. And I felt that for a writer who is justifiably best known for the deftness of her touch, the lightness of her humor. It was a somewhat leaden book at its great length and that it would have been enormously served by being much shorter. So those, those would be my two most disappointing books of the year. Um, unfortunately, because I say I came to them with high hopes. Well, I think that, uh, and I, I agree with essentially what you say. I do think, I, I don't think that the, uh, I thought Crosstalk did have a great deal of her humor in it. I think that you're probably right. That humor has been evident in in novella length um, and, and more concentrated. But beyond the actual book itself, and you're, I, I, I come into every book hoping it's going to be the best book I, I ever read. So to some extent, every book is going to be a disappointment. But there were also cases uh, where the book was... The book was disappointing partway through it, or there were disappointing aspects about the book. The book was really doing things well, and then at some point it stopped doing them too well. And I have two examples of that. Um, one is a book which I, uh, to use a phrase probably that I think James used last week in talking about Christopher Priest, I think Nisi Shell's Everfair is just a brilliant idea for a book. It's a historical period that needs to be talked about. There are individual episodes that are brilliant, but the book structurally jumps from one continent and one decade to another so that the the, the, the kind of narrative arc is, is, is so fragmented that after a while you're essentially piecing together a 30-year narrative rather than reading a novel about a group of characters. There are some wonderful characters in it, but, but the fragmentation as the novel went on um, disappointed me. And a similar thing happened to me when I was reading another novel that struck me as being enormously original in concept, which was Ada Palmer's To Like the Lightning. Uh, and it was just intriguing. It, it was written in kind of 18th century prose, but it takes place in the 24th century or something along those lines. It has some clever, mysterious ideas in it. 
and eventually got tangled up in its own philosophy to the extent that um, I was beginning to lose interest in the uh, in, in the characters that I thought were going to carry me through the through the novel. So so both of those are examples of novels that achieved a great portion of what they set out to do, but in the end had disappointing aspects to them. Look, to, to redeem this part of the conversation so it doesn't sound as though we are kicking people, I guess what I want to say is that there were also books published during the same period that were unexpectedly delightful, that exceeded the expectations I had for them, and that the value mm. of talking about books that don't meet your expectations and acknowledging the books that exceed them is that it reinforces that you need to approach books stories with as open a mind as possible because you can find that you're going to be delighted when you didn't think you were. You know, I was uh, greatly engaged by Charlie Jane Anders' book and I didn't know what I, how, what, what I'd think about it. I loved Nine Fox Gambit by um, Yoon Ha Lee, which yeah. I think is a gnarly, chewy, interesting kind of a book. I, you know, I loved Adam mm -hmm. Roberts' book, as I've said so often before. And there were several others during the year that just grabbed me. When I read Greener Pastures by Michael Weehunt, I had no real expectations of it and found it to be terrific. The Alexander Weinstein collection that James was talking about last weekend, the, uh, the Carlos mm -hmm. Hernandez book, you know, the um, annotated book of quantum solaria or whatever it is, was, was, had, was, was, ter was terrific. You know, Assimilated Cuban's Guide to Quantum. That's right. I, I don't have a copy here in front of me, so the, the the joy of digital copies, Gary. You don't have them to refer to, you know, right in front of you. So, I mean, for all, I mean, what I'd also say, actually, not only was it were there unexpectedly delightful books and books that were disappointing, but there was not there was nothing I read that would stop me continuing to read the people who didn't meet my expectations this year. You know, if you know what I mean. It's like. Um, no, I wasn't knocked out by Gentleman Joel and the Red Queen, though I think it'll probably be on the Hugo ballot next year. Mm -hmm. And I will definitely read her next book. It wouldn't stop me. Uh, no, I was not as engaged by Crosstalk as I would hope to have been and found it a disappointing book. But I'm really, really, really mm -hmm. eager to read her Roswell book that she's working on for ages. And I'm eager to see what she'll do, what Connie will do next. And so on, you know, so. Well, and there are writers, um, and we talked about this before uh, in, in the novella category who um, you want to keep reading simply because they're unpredictable. I mean, we've talked a couple of times about Kids Johnson. One of the things I like about Kids Johnson's work is that I, I have no expectations. I don't expect anything that she does to look like much like what she did before. And, and, and she, she doesn't disappoint it. The dream life of Bella Bow was nothing like, Spar was nothing like, and now she's doing the wind in the willows thing. So everything is completely new, and I'm just kind of astonished by that. One of the writers that I, I mean, you're right. There are writers that we want good things from. We want, we want Connie Willis to be light and funny and 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 insightful about characters, and and yet sharply stirred in many ways at the same time. And there are other writers. Uh, and we, we want Scalzi to be Scalzi. We always wanted Heinlein to be Heinlein. Um, but when I think of somebody like Kids, for example, I don't know what's coming next. When I think of Elizabeth Hand, I don't know what's coming next. Uh, I don't expect to see another Waking the Moon, as much as I love that novel. Um, I'm not sure I want to see another Waking the Moon, because I want to see something that's as different from her earlier novels as, as that you know that was from her, her beginning novels. So... So 
what I'm I, I like being surprised even by writers that I think I know well. Fair enough. I mean, and that's um, are there writers that you turn to for comfort, though, Gary? Where you want that familiarity? Uh, you know what? I, I, I think I probably do. And we, we, we were talking about hard science fiction, you hard, the stuff that I uh, grew up on. One of the writers who will reliably give me, he's not the best prose stylist in the field by a long shot, and he knows he's not, but he will reliably give me the old um, classic Wellesian sense of wonder is probably Stephen Baxter. Yeah. He really knows how to do that. He really feels it himself. I've got his enormously long sequel to The War of the Worlds uh, waiting to read, and I'm looking forward to it because I don't expect any revelations. I expect satisfaction. That's fair enough. I mean, one of the great losses for, for me with Terry Pratchett is he was always one of my uh, most comforting of reads because always mm. engaging, always warm, always funny, always sharp, always smart, and there was a sensibility that carried through all of the novels that pulled you back to them again and again. Um, I suppose C.J. Cherry can be like that for me, though I've not been that engaged with the Foreigner series as it's continued on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are other writers. I mean, I somewhere I know in the background of the world, there is a American God sequel being worked on. It's either been rumored or it's actually being worked on. But it's... Yeah. And I'm very eager to see what happens with Shadow Moon. I found myself rereading American Gods this year. I mean, there was a new um, American Gods novelette that came out in 2015 and ended up in my 2016 year's best. I think Black Dog, I think it was called. It's the story that begins to bring Shadow Moon full circle back to uh, the United States. And I found myself, as I say, reread, was thoroughly reengaged with uh, American Gods, and now I want that next piece of story in my life. I'm eager for it, and I I know that I will engage with it. It'll be warm. Hopefully it won't be disappointing. Who knows? But I'm really looking forward to it. And I suspect we'll... See, uh, I, I suspect we'll see some of that about the time that the the TV series uh, gets underway as well. Uh, I mean, American Gods was a lot of fun. I thought uh, that by comparison with some of the later, more intense things, American Gods was fairly shaggy. Uh, hmm. there, yeah. There's a lot in it. Uh, there's a there, there, there's a lot of uh, side stories in it. There's a lot of mythologizing. There's a serial killer plot which kind of knits things together and brings people back to this small town in Wisconsin. But for pure narrative, I I prefer the Ocean at the End of the Lane and the Graveyard Book. Yes, but they're much spikier books. I mean, I think they're better books in many ways, most ways. Uh, yeah. I think you know the work that he they along with Caroline are the works you'll be remembered for. Um, most likely, I suspect. But there's still something very warm and engaging about that shaggy bag of a road novel that is American Gods. And I was surprised because I didn't well, really again, feel that way when I reread it. I, no, and, 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 and when I was reading Black Dog when it was in, uh, it was, it was, I guess, the original story in Neil's collection that came out in 2015. Yeah. Um, and I remember thinking, okay. We were talking earlier about characters that you remember. Shadow is somebody I remembered pretty well um, from, from from the novel as as a distinct character, as a likable, flawed, um, flawed in the sense of a character's intentionally flawed, not flawed in the writing yeah. of the character. Um, but yeah, and, and Neil is very, very good at creating ingratiating characters uh, such as that, uh, even when they're in some ways, almost ciphers. I mean, for example, in the ocean at the end of the lane, we know very little about uh, about the narrator. 
uh, other than his childhood. Uh, and yet, he's a character that, that, that we'll remember. So, so there is a certain, a certain skill to that sort of thing. I, I, I think what you're saying about comfort has to do, again, with character, because when you mentioned Pratchett again, um, there are two things that come to mind about Pratchett. One is the characters are absolutely uh, ingratiating. They're not all sympathetic, but they're, they're complex. And the second thing is, and this is this is something I would say that Pratchett shares with Connie Willis generally and few other writers. It's really difficult to write that funny. Yeah, it's it really is. difficult to write sentences that are that clever and to do it over and over and over again in novel after novel. Uh, Can I tell you that is, I didn't think the strength of Crosstalk was its humor at all. I thought the strength of Crosstalk, such as it had, where it really had strength, was actually uh, where it was gripping and engaging uh, and disorienting. That's where I thought was the strength of that particular book, honestly. Um, I didn't find it enormously funny. Um, which yeah, is I wasn't fine. talking so, specifically yeah. but about no, Crosstalk. No, no, but some of Connie's short stories are some of the funniest short stories in science. And it's my point simply was it's difficult to bring off that kind of humor. And there is, as we've mentioned a few times on the podcast, quite a bit less humor in science fiction than there could be. I think that's true. Fantasy. Tell you what else I was going to say. Um, it, I don't think it would have occurred to us when we started this conversation six and a half years ago to talk about whether we felt optimistic about the future of science fiction and fantasy and horror and all that swirls around it. But I think it's something that occurs to me now, and I wonder if it occurs to you, mm. because I have to say, reading around, and even though when we did our year interview last year, or last week, and probably when we, um, when we do our year interview write-ups and all those other kind of things, we'll, we'll come up with all sorts of caveats, I find myself enormously optimistic about the future of science fiction and fantasy, possibly in the ways I'm not even optimistic about the world we're living in physically. But in terms of the, the fiction, I'm enormously optimistic about it. I'm enormously optimistic about 2017. Well, there are lots of writers. I mean, you were, you were talking about writers who you want to read because you know reliably they're going to deliver something that you want them to deliver, and they're going to do it very well. And the first thing that comes to mind in 2017 is Kim Stanley Robinson's New York 2312, which I, I – I, and it's going to be exactly – it's not going to be exactly what I expect. There's a big difference between what you expect and a good novel. What I want is from, from Stan Robinson is a good novel, but I don't want the novel I think he's going to write. He's already done interesting things with it. So, so that's a kind of reliable thing. So you have grandmasters of the field, and at this point I think it's fair to say that Robinson is one of the grandmasters of the field, whether he's been named that or not. Uh, who are going to reliably do that. You have very popular writers who are going to maintain popularity, and you have new writers that are doing new and interesting things. Another thing I, that gives me a sense of optimism is not just the internationalization of the field that we were talking about earlier in this podcast, but the, um, I guess, the, the, the increasing acceptance of ideas from science fiction and fantasy in novels received as mainstream novels. I mean, uh, three of us last week had uh, Colson Whitehead on the year's best books. Um, and it's, it's, it's not as though this is somebody who's um, appropriated the stuff of science fiction and horror. He kind of grew up on it. It's, he said in many interviews he grew up on science fiction and horror movies, and that's how he learned how to plot them, and that there are a lot of elements. So 
there's no longer a sense of tension when a writer does that. And even three or four years ago, I think that sense, sense of tension was there. Um, yeah. So I think with a generation of writers out there, which includes people like Michael Chabon and obviously Jonathan and Ethan and Karen Russell and Colson Whitehead and um, any number of other uh, writers, uh, Justin Cronin, there's a, there's a sense now that it's okay to move back and forth, uh, that, uh, that, that it's okay to look at a science fiction or a fantasy novel as a novel. This year's in review of Time Magazine, the horrible nightmare Time Magazine that has Donald Trump on the cover, also has the 10 best novels in a column significantly not written by Lev Grossman. I forget who actually did write it. And one of the 10 best novels is Charlie Jane Anders, yeah. All the Birds in the Sky. Uh, that's progress. That's a genuine kind of progress that would have been... Uh, it was even a little shocking to me uh, to see it this week. Uh, but 10 years ago, it would have been unthinkable for somebody who was involved in the field, who's a journalist in the field, who's written lots of short fiction, who was clearly a science fiction and fantasy person, to end up on the time 10 best list. There you go. The, everything is changing, Gary. And maybe on that note, well, we might... Yeah, what? Yeah. I was, just, I was just saying, I think it's mostly changing in a good way. I think there's um, a lot of uh, formula fiction out there. There's a lot of fantasy I get in the mail that looks exactly like the fantasy you got in the mail yesterday. But there's a lot of stuff out there that's making enormous amounts of money and gaining lots and lots of readers, and I don't know who these people are. Uh, some of them are urban fantasy writers. Some of them are writing zombie novels. Some of them have uh, you know, interplanetary wars going on that, uh, that seem to be addressed to a, a young adult audience. So I guess I'm feeling good about the corner of the field that I know about, but I'm also increasingly aware that that corner is a smaller and smaller segment of the field as a whole. Yeah, which just means we have to read wider and, and, and talk more and engage with more people so that we know what is happening and we do get a, a, a better picture we of it. We need to find out what's, yeah. And I guess we will or we won't. But I guess on that note, we're getting towards the end of an hour of recording. So maybe we'll okay. wind up. We will, you know, we will set our sort of <laughs> poorly recorded, awful audio quality podcast aside for a hiatus period. And well, we, we will talk about what happens in 2017, and and whether we continue or not. That's a, a discussion to have uh, laughter because we're. I think it's fair to say here on the podcast, it's not a a given that we're going to return for the, from this particular hiatus, but we shall see what happens. We shall talk about it, and uh, if we do return to another podcast, it'll be a new year. It will be a new year. It'll be a continuation of our seventh year and certainly i think i'm going to make a commitment that there'll be at least one more episode of the cood street podcast because i think we're going to have a little chat with our friend well not a little that sounds deprecating a a conversation with our friend uh ellen clages about her novella passing strange so that yes. will happen definitely so this is definitely not the last episode uh and there may be another 300 in front of us or there may be one so we shall just have to see we will find out, but they may be occasional rather than weekly. Who knows? We'll Who find knows? out. We'll talk about that. Talk among yourselves while we're on hiatus and, and yes. write your answers on a three-by-five <laughs> yes. card. I, and I, until I, then, you know, I hope everybody out there who, who's, who's still with us after this long year has a wonderful holiday season and that it brings them all their good hope and that they have a wonderful 2017. 
The same wishes come from this end in Chicago, where it is now snowing heavily. And the same to you, my friend. Happy holidays. And we, same to you, and we will talk again soon.